because God is just free and or because God is righteous, that's why universalism is true. But that's ridiculous. I mean, these are nonsense arguments. Well, not nonsense, but they just don't work. Hey there, and welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. My name is Seth. I'm your host, and uh, I have a topic for you today that, well, uh, we decided just to go all in the first episode and discuss something that's ultimately going to happen to maybe all of us, uh, and that topic would be hell. What happens when we die? What happens with with uh, our relationship with God and Jesus when we die? And, and ultimately, what does that salvation look like? This conversation was a pleasure to have. Uh, and I must say that I learned a lot with our guest. Uh, some background on him before I introduce him. Uh, he completed his doctorate underneath the supervision of Gordon Wenham and Craig Bartholomew. He was a sixth form college teacher at Worcester in the UK. In 2001, uh, he began his work in the publishing arena at Paternoster. Uh, in 2005, he published a work on the Trinity that was very important, and briefly after that, uh, took a job at Whipsonstock Publishers, where he currently resides. Uh, I am, of course, speaking about uh, Robin Perry, uh, the author of his best-known book, The Evangelical Universalist, which I can't recommend enough. Uh, and again, he wrote that under the pseudonym of Gregory MacDonald. So let's get into it. So my uh, my guest today is is Dr. Robin Perry. Um, Dr. Perry, I uh, what would you prefer me call you, Dr. Perry, Robin? What would you? Prefer? Robin's fine. Robin, yeah. that'd be easier for me. Um, so I know that there will be many listeners that that might not be not only familiar with you, but but some of your work, especially over here uh, in the the type of churches that I was raised in. So I was hoping we could start with a little bit of uh, you just introducing yourself a bit. Uh, sure. Okay. So I became a Christian when I was almost 15. That was through a Methodist youth group. Uh, but very quickly, I became involved in an evangelical one. Very quickly, I became involved with evangelical charismatic churches. That was around about 1987. Uh, and th- that's right through uh, sort of Baptistic kinds. But then in 2012, I became an Anglican and currently um training for ordination as an Anglican presbyter, which is, or priest, whatever, whichever you prefer. Uh, so I am evangelical with a small e, Anglican, Orthodox, Catholic, all with small letters, <laughs> except for the Anglican, which is the one true church of God. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, the Anglican church, is, is that similar? I know they have a, an American version of that. Is that, is that, uh, is that? Church of England. Okay. So, well, there the you go. So, in in researching you a bit, you have a different take on hell than than what I was I was raised in, and um, what I was led to believe all the way up through university. Um, and so, uh, and you you referenced it a minute ago. Your your small e evangelical, um, and and I know understand your view of hell is is a is a universalist view of hell. So I was hoping you could break those two down because in my mind, evangelical. Uh, in the church that I was raised in, and universalism don't really mesh well together. I was hoping you could kind of define those. Right. Uh, No, that's what I was told too. And so for many years, I didn't even consider the possibility of of universalism. So maybe I should just explain what universalism is, which is basically the view and, and what I mean by universalism. 
is the view that in the end, God will save all people through Christ. So it's very important to understand that this is God doing this and he's doing it through Christ. So this isn't God will save you. It doesn't matter what that Jesus came. It doesn't matter that Jesus died or rose again. We, God will save us anyway because he's nice. It's not, it's not that view. It's the view that uh, no matter how much sin wrecks creation and needs to be dealt with, God has dealt with it in Christ. And what God has done in Jesus, in his death and resurrection and ascension, is, um, is enough for the salvation of the world. So, so it's a sort of Christ-centered attempt to, to explain how God will save everyone. But of course, does that mean there isn't a hell? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. Well, it depends what you mean by hell. So the way I was taught hell uh, when I became a Christian was that hell was eternal conscious torment. Um, and after a few years, I became persuaded that uh, the view that some people call annihilationism was was a better way of understanding scripture than eternal torment because the passages there's a few passages which look like that, that hell is ever, lasts forever and you're suffering forever and ever uh, but as i read various uh, biblical scholars who took different views i began to think you know those passages on the surface in english they look very clear uh, but when you look into them a bit more they're not they're not actually that clear and um some of them can be read as as suggesting annihilation. So that's the view I took for several years, and I didn't even consider, didn't cross my mind for a minute that anything else could be uh, a possible way of reading scripture. Um, but eventually, I I went through an existential crisis, which is what raised the question for me, which was that I came to believe that God was able, if he wanted to, to save everybody without violating their freedom, because free will was what I'd always used as the reason why God wouldn't save everybody. Uh, he wants to. In, in my non-Calvinist moments, in my non-Calvinist moments, I said God wants to save everybody, uh, but but he can't. But he can't force that on people, or it wouldn't be love, you know. And if it's love, he wants us to freely choose. And if we freely choose not to, then that's up to us, and God can't make us. But I came to be persuaded that that if, God, of course, God doesn't make us. Uh, God doesn't compel us to do things that we don't want to do. Well, sometimes he might. But um, God can solicit our wills in such a way that we will freely choose to be saved. And God could do this, I came to believe and still do believe, for everybody. But I was also convinced that he wouldn't do that. And then I had a problem because I thought, ah, so God could, without violating their freedom, save everyone. But he's not going to. He's going to send them to hell instead. And that's that's quite difficult. Uh, so I wrestled with this, and then I came across um, Thomas Tolbert, and I read his book. I came across him through William Lane Craig, who was criticising him, and I thought, yes, I've got to find a good reason to disagree with this view. And the more I read Craig's criticisms of Tom Tolbert, the more I became persuaded that they weren't very good responses and that Thomas Tolbert made a good case. So I had to be persuaded that the scripture said this, and Tolbert gave some, um, what I thought were, at least at face value, quite plausible ways that the Bible actually can be read in a universalist way without twisting it. But I wasn't persuaded. So I spent the next two years reading everything I could about all these difficult texts and, and, and scripture and how it might fit together. And at the end of two years, I got to the point where I thought, you know, I really do think that 
God will save everyone through Christ, is in fact entirely consistent with Scripture. Uh, and there are difficult texts, but every view that anyone might take on this issue will come across difficult texts, and you have to find a way of dealing with that, and not pretending that it's all straightforward and obvious, and if everyone just read the text straightforwardly, they'd see that my view is the right one, whatever. Uh, it's more complicated. So that was back in the no late 1990s that I came to that view, and... Uh, and and have held it ever since. Sure, uh, thank you for that. So, I have so in in telling people that I was anticipating doing this podcast and and rounding up people that would be willing to come on. When I told them about specifically this view of, I guess salvation or sanctification or those are two different things, but you know what I mean. Um, they kept peppering me with just rapid fire questioning to defend something that I'm 100% certain I don't know if I agree with yet. I I know I can't believe mm -hmm. in, the, in eternal uh, conscious torment, but the other two I'm still wrestling with. And, uh -huh. and I found that I was ill-prepared to defend that. Um, and I've seen many of your other interviews that, that you do that, but I'd, I'd like to approach this a different way. Um, so I've heard you say in the past that, that uh, Christian universalism more fits in line with the gospel of Jesus as opposed to the other options. And so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the two work well together. Yes. Okay. And before I do that, I've just realized I didn't actually answer the question you asked me previously, which was hell. So, and I didn't actually explain hell. So let me just say this for now, and then I'll proceed to sure. answer the question you just asked. Um, so whatever hell is, um, and, and we do have to have a place for hell because let's call it hell for now. Hell, of course, is not a word that's in the Bible itself. I mean, you'll find it in various translations, and I'm okay with that, uh, so long as you allow the text itself to explain what it means by hell, rather than importing all the cultural baggage that the term has acquired over centuries. Right. Um, so the term itself isn't there, but the concept of some post-mortem end-time punishment for sin uh, and sinners is, is definitely in Scripture. And so... Whatever we say about universalism, we have to find the space for that and to take that seriously. Jesus, as I'm often told, uh, spoke more about this than anyone else in the New Testament. And yes, that's true. He did. And that means we have to take it very seriously and it has to have a place in our theology. So the kind of universalism I uh, seek to develop is not one that says there's no punishment after death for sinners, that there isn't a day of judgment, that that there isn't... Um, conscious suffering uh, for sin and so on. What I'm saying is that can't be the end of the story. So in the way I think of this, of hell, um, it's not, if someone is, goes to hell, if we want to use that language, um, that's not the end of their story. That's like the penultimate thing, that there will be a redemption from hell uh, after that. So I have to try and make that case, which is what I try and do in the book and various other things I've done. So, so I mean, there's a lot more that could be said about that. But what I would want to say is there is a hell, but it's not the end. It's, it's penultimate. So the question you then ask is about the gospel. And why do I think that, that, that this view of mine arises from the gospel? So I suppose... It's because I think all Christian theology and all Christian interpretation of Scripture is Christ-focused. And, and the gospel, and for the early Christians, the rule of faith was the thing, that you read Scripture in the light of the rule of faith. And what the rule of faith was, was simply um, the apostolic story of Jesus, that God becomes flesh in the person of Christ, 
that he lives among us as uh, as our representative, perfect human being. That he that he dies for our sin. That he's raised by God from the dead and ascends to heaven, and God pours out the Holy Spirit so, upon the church, and so on. So this story, this way of understanding Christ, becomes the centre for the way they read Scripture. So this is the rule of faith, which is subsequently becomes the creeds so that we know, which has this Trinitarian shape, and it's and it's focused on Christ and the story of the gospel, the story of Christ coming, dying, rising again, uh, and so on. So Christian theology, if it's going to be really evangelical, has to have the evangel, which is the gospel, at the heart. Now, I'm often told that um, it's presumptuous to say, oh, God will save everyone, because that's not up to you to say that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's up to God to do that. But I think, well, actually, God has said this because this is what the gospel story is about. If you think about it, most, almost all Christians historically have been universalists about certain things. They're universalists about the claim that everybody is made by God. Everybody, without exception. Right. Um, we're universalist about the claim that human beings are made universally in the image of God, and as such, they have um, they're orientated towards God. They find their fulfilment in God. They're created with a purpose, with a destiny, to find their completion in God. Uh, so, so human beings have a direction, as it were, for which we're created. Something we're created for, and what we're created for is for God. Uh, we are made by him and through him and for him. Mm-hmm. So this is what all Christians believe about everybody. We also believe that everyone's a sinner, so we're universalists about that. But we also believe, and the, and the early church fathers were quite clear about this, and scriptures too, Christ becomes a human on behalf of humanity. Uh, he represents the whole, well, Israel, but also the whole uh, of humanity before God. And I think the New Testament is quite clear, and most Christians in history, apart from some Calvinists, have said that Christ also died for everybody. So almost all Christians are universalists about that. Christ's death was for all with the intention of redeeming all. Christ's resurrection also was a resurrection on behalf of all humanity. So he rises as our representative, and this is something that Paul uh, developed uh, in the New Testament, you know that Christ, we we rise because we share in His resurrection. His represents re- resurrection is the resurrection of humanity, and in Him, as we share in Him by the Holy Spirit, we join Him. We are raised. We are raised. So all of this stuff is stuff that Christians are universalist about. So what I'm saying is, okay, in that case, what do we learn about the future of humanity in the story of the cross and resurrection? We see in the re- resurrection that humanity as a whole has been raised in its representative in Christ. And Christ's resurrection is written small. Uh, It is the future of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is the new creation. It it is uh, all things made new. So the new age has begun because Christ has been raised. And because Christ has been raised, this is not just uh, some quirky miracle. That's oh, that's not that amazing. Look what God can do. He can raise people from the dead. Uh, this is the future of humanity there completed. So God has already redeemed 
all humanity in Christ in the resurrection. So, so this, when I say the gospel is universalist, I mean that all of humanity is already redeemed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, we don't all share in that yet in our experience. And in fact, none of us do. None of us share in that in its fullness yet because we haven't been resurrected. Right. But we will be. We will share in his resurrection. Uh, that will come. It's not a full reality for us yet, but it'll come. And already by the Holy Spirit, uh, those who are who are part of the church, who've been joined to Christ through baptism by the Holy Spirit, are, are um, starting to participate in the age to come and are experiencing signs of this inbreaking future in the present. So there's a sense in which all humanity is already saved, and that is what is declared in the gospel. So I say it's an evangelical universalism, and it grows out of the gospel. Um, in another sense, of course, none of us experience that fully. Some of us, not much at all. Uh, but, the, but the faith we have is that God has already shown the future and has already committed himself in Christ and in the working of the Holy Spirit uh, to bring about that future. And so in the New Testament, we see when Paul anticipates, you know, what is the future of creation? It's, it is the future that all things will be headed up under Christ, uh, that reconciliation of all things through the cross, which we read in Colossians 1, which is already a present reality, but not an experienced reality for all. Um, uh, if this is making any sense, I'm just waffling. No, it, no, it does. It <laughs> so, does. It does. Okay. And and um, it is it is God being all in all, uh, which was a favorite verse of the early church universalists, because mm. they were saying, look, if God is all in all, what does it mean for God to be all in any particular individual? If God is all in me, then all evil has to be, and all rebellion has to be eradicated mm. out of me. Because if all the rebellion and sin in my heart hasn't been eradicated, God is not all in me but in the future when god brings everything to a climax god is going to be all in all which means it's going to be everything in everyone right and eradicating evil and eradicating all rebellion and evil so this is comes back to the question why is why do i think this is more of a gospel view than the alternative okay so let's think about three different views of hell you've got hell as a torture chamber I, these are slightly caricatures but no, hell is a torture that, chamber that is like fair. <laughs> right. yeah. what we could call the traditional view but it's not the traditional view i mean mm. all these views go right back uh into the early church but it's the one that's become the mainstream view particularly in the west yes. so there's hell as a torture chamber you've got hell as a sort of execution electric chair mm-hmm which is annihilation. So, so, and then you've got hell as um, maybe some kind of nasty, like chemotherapy, maybe, um, whereby it's something that's unpleasant, but it's intended to bring about uh, healing. Mm-hmm. So these are three different ways of thinking of, about hell. Now, they've all got pros and cons, and all of them are analogies and need to be supplemented. And modified slightly, but um, which one of these approaches is most gospel-like? So, how does God deal with sin? How do, how does God want to deal with sin? Does He want to do it by? And how does God deal with evil? Well, God punishes evil, of course, and evil is bad. God wants to eradicate evil from creation. So, how does God do this? 
Well, what the gospel says is that God does this by condemning sin in the death of Christ and in raising Christ from the dead. So the gospel way of God dealing with sin is through is not through the destruction of sinners so that they're wiped out. It's through the redemption of sinners, not simply forgiveness, but transformation of sinners so that sinners cease to be sinners uh, and become holy people who, who in whom the life of God is is fully uh, alive and full of the spirit. Mm-hmm. So. So the gospel way of dealing with sin is through forgiveness and through transformation and through redemption. That's what the gospel is about, right? That's the gospel bit. So I think universalism says, yeah, and the gospel prevails for the whole of creation. The gospel prevails. Whereas if God ends up either torturing people forever, that's not the gospel way of dealing with sin. So that's saying God's got two ways of dealing with sin, the gospel way and some other way, which is not gospelly. Or annihilating them, like electric chairing them. Uh, again, God hasn't healed creation. He's got evil out of creation just by getting rid of the evil people. Right, um, which is effective. But, that, Still but that's not brutal. gospel because gospel heals people. Gospel doesn't eradicate people. Gospel heals people. So I think what I'm suggesting is if God has a gospel solution to sin and evil, we know what that is. It's healing and restoration and so on. Even if it, even if it goes through a difficult... Uh, and painful phases, and even if it's everyone doesn't experience it in the same way at the same time, in the end, anyway, hope that makes yeah, some no, kind that, of sense. Thank you. Yeah, no, it does. Um, so a minute ago, you said, uh, you know, that all three views have have had history there, but at least in in my worldview and in, in my bias and the lens that I was I was given, it's it's implied that it's always been eternal conscious torment or it's always been this so when did that i guess the history the question i'm asking is in the history of the church when was that shift or why was that shift and or why did we move away from from being at least open to having the option of not being tormented for forever yeah and that's a the answer to that would be it wouldn't be a straightforward and simple answer it would mm-hmm. be complicated and I don't think we really know all of the, all of the mm-hmm. details to be able to answer that properly. I mean, we can track that there were shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, because our data is so sparse, it's very difficult to track shifts neatly. Mm-hmm. For individual thinkers, it's not always clear. And there's dispute among scholars, is this particular person an annihilationist or an eternal tormentor or even a universalist? I mean, there are some people for whom all three views have been claimed. So it's yeah. not always clear with individuals because sometimes they say things that seem to conflict with each other and then other times they say things that are it's also not clear of course what most ordinary christians thought because the data we have is just from a few spokespeople leaders and so on bishops and whatnot and what did ordinary folks think well the man who is most the two people who are most associated with the view of eternal conscious torment are Tertullian in the second century, and in this, and both of them from North Africa, uh, and the second is Saint Augustine, fourth, fifth century, and Saint Augustine is the guy who really popularised the view in the West. Quite why, and he argues at length in the City of God as to why he takes this view. I mean, and to be fair to him, he feels that Scripture requires it, although he's also quite clear that he doesn't speak Greek. Uh, he, speak, he likes Latin. He found Greek too difficult. And so, you know, there are bits where he's, it's very obvious to him 
what the Bible means, but he's not actually reading it in Greek. Um, okay. That doesn't make much sense. The universalist view is, yeah, well, is but it, he I mean, was a bright level guest. If it's written in Greek. He's brilliant. Yeah, it's written in Greek. Yeah, and so arguably his understanding of original sin, which, which was based on Romans 5, uh, a lot of it was based on a, a mistranslation in the Latin of, of the mm-hmm. Greek. And so he, and, you know, if you read it in the Greek, it doesn't say what he took it to mean. Now, you might want to argue that you can still read the Greek text that way, and that's fine. And I think there's important discussion to be had there, but that's not what you're asking me about. Mm-hmm. So you had these three views. Um, one of them was associated with Origen, who, who was... Uh, Loved by many and hated by others. And quite why, by the 6th century, his views, some of the people who followed him, their views had become increasingly weird. And so when their weird versions were condemned uh, in the 6th century, um, people just assumed that Origen himself had had those Mm -hmm. views. And so a lot of the views to do with universalism Went away. Which had been pretty mainstream. Even great people like Gregory of Nyssa, who was very orthodox and very involved in the creeds, St. Athanasius, uh, the core of orthodoxy in the battle with Arius and so on. These guys were arguably universalist. But the point is, when the view had become associated with some really quirky people with some slightly strange views, um, they tended to think, well, that must be what Origen thought, and the whole thing became condemned by association. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think that was some of it. Some of it was politics. Some of it was just who pe- people who became influential for other reasons and their views Took hold. came to dominate. Yeah. yeah. So you, you've alluded to um, your the, the universalist view versus a, a Calvinist view. Um and and in my mind, they they both struggle with um, a similar problem in the point of I guess in a I was raised mostly Calvinist, and I don't believe I'm that anymore. But in in that view, I've always struggled with well, what is the point of me witnessing or or proselytizing the the gospel if God just picks and choose you know duck duck burn? Um, and 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 on the universal side, it seems like it it also in the end doesn't matter as much. So I guess the, my question is, why, why would a, a modern Christian then continue to spread the gospel with either view? They seem to have a similar shortfall. You're right. The, the similar point can be made against both. Um, so it always slightly galls me when Calvinists make it against universalism, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, well, hold yeah. on. <laughs> um, the Calvinist dancer of always made sense to me um, when Calvinists, are, are, this put, problem is put to them, and you go, well, why would you evangelize? Because God's going to save the elect anyway. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, well, this is how God saves the elect, through the gospel. Which and is, God has which chosen to do it through the preaching of the gospel. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, you know, you might think, well, I'd so I would say, why preach the gospel? Because that's how God saves people. You know, and that's and people, and so you say, well, they'll be saved in the end anyway. Yeah, they'll all be saved in the end through the gospel. So you've got to preach it, and it might. And again, it depends if you're a Calvinist universalist or an Arminian one, right? So, well, not all universalists are the same. So if you're a Calvinist, if you're an Arminian universalist, 
and you're saying that God doesn't determine everything that happens. Which to then boil there that are down, a that's a that's a free will universalist to say you're an Arminian. Free will, universalist. free will, okay. yeah. Okay. Yes, right. Okay. Although it's a bit more complicated because Calvinists believe in free will too. Okay. But Calvinists believe that free will is compatible with God's determining all our choices. Okay. I was and Arminians say no, it's not. <laughs> if God determines all our choices, they're not free. Gotcha. So, so for an Arminian. Our choices are free, but they're not determined. So, if that's your view, then then it's gonna. You can say, well, look, people need to hear the gospel, and there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are not going to be saved by the time they die, and are going to go to hell. Who wouldn't have gone to hell if they'd heard the gospel beforehand? And so, so if you're an Arminian university, you've got an extra motive to preach it because you don't want people to go to hell, mm-hmm. um, even if you think they're going to be saved anyway. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter. You know, oh, who cares? You know, that's like saying, well, that's like Jeremiah going, hey, what the heck? It doesn't really matter if the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and and all that, because God's going to restore us after the exile anyway. So do what you like. That wasn't his attitude at all. He was he was desperate to persuade people not to go that route because it would have been better if they hadn't gone that route. But but they did. Right. Even if it's the case that God restores them in the end. So. An Arminian Universalist would have those extra motivations. A Calvinist, of course, wouldn't. A Calvinist Universalist would have to say, we preach the gospel because Christ commands us to, because this is the means by which God saves people. Um, But those who do not respond before they die, that's because God ordained that they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, God ordained that they would be redeemed subsequently after having had a time in hell. And then they, uh, that's quite a difficult thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's not as difficult as saying God ordained that they would go to hell and not get out. Ever. That's even more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. No. In, in your mind, as you do things like this, and you do, you know, you just you discuss with people, I'm certain, all the time. Um, what do you find has been just the? And I'm I'm asking this more for the people that will listen that don't like myself haven't made their mind up. What do you find is the strongest case? against universalism and it does not mean that's an endorsement of the other three or the other two i mean just the strongest case yeah, sure, didn't. Sure. yeah the strongest case well i haven't come across very strong theological arguments against universalism um because so so, so the strongest arguments against universalism would be particular biblical texts that on the face of it look like how does that how can that be um the case when you say particular do you mean just proof texting Um, when you say particular yeah yeah yeah, proof text but particular texts in the bible Mm -hmm. where somebody would say so for example uh maybe luke 16 with the rich man and lazarus Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who goes to Hades, mm-hmm. and th- there's a chasm between them that can't be crossed. Right. So, you know, on the surface, you think, yeah, that's that's tricky, isn't it? You know, that's not what you would expect to read if uh, universalism was true. And I think then you have to take that seriously. I mean, I think there are things I can say about that text. I have various ways that um, I think. At very least, mean that it's not that it's you can't use it as a, a a break to say universalism isn't true. But I still think it remains 
Americans as something that ought to niggle a universalist. And there are other texts likewise, uh, particularly maybe some in Revelation, although in the book I have a very long chapter explaining how the language in Revelation does and doesn't work. And, and I argue, I think I argue quite persuasively that, you know, in Revelation, although you have people in the lake of fire and the language seems very uh, final, uh, we also see those very same people, the nations and kings of the earth, coming into the New Jerusalem. And I think in the book of Revelation, it's very clear that the nations and the kings of the earth are not the church. They're not Christian people. They're the baddies. Right? They're, the, they're the people who oppose Christ in the church all the way through the book. And they're, in, they're, they're the ones who are not in the book of life. And here they are coming into the New Jerusalem, and their names are in the Book of Life. So it, I think for the reader, this would send clear signals to uh, you need to think how to carefully how to interpret that language about what the Lake of Fire is about. Mm-hmm. So. But that said, um, those texts about the Lake of Fire and so on are very strong and and people like me need to feel the weight of that, you know, mm-hmm. need to feel the challenge of that language still and not to feel we can domesticate it. Yeah. Uh, so I think the strongest arguments would be of those kinds rather than a theological argument because I've never heard any good theological arguments right. against universalism, which is to say arguments to say because God is because God is just free or because God is righteous, that's why universalism isn't true. But yeah. that's ridiculous. I mean, these are nonsense arguments. Well, not nonsense, but they just don't work. None of those arguments from the character or nature of God against universalism work. None of, you know, none, none, nothing like that. Nothing from the story of the gospel. No, or none of those kinds of arguments work. It would have to be from specific texts. And texts matter, of course, because scripture is scripture and it's authoritative. Yeah. So it's all about then how do we read scripture? How do we interpret that stuff? And how do we not domesticate it, but allow it to threaten us still and challenge us? Yeah, how do we check uh, our bias? And I that? hope that it still threatens me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Um, before I let you go, where would you point people to um, that are in a similar position as me that, that, are, that are questioning and they want, to, they want to be able to make a concerted effort to educate themselves in a, in a way... That will that will yield clarity, I guess, in, in in what they walk every day. Yes, of course, and you need to read views from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the best place to start is the um, Zondervan book, Four Views on Hell. Oh yeah, I saw that one earlier. That one has oh. the purgatory included in it as well. Yeah. Yeah, that one there, Four Views on Hell, because um, that's got. Eternal torment, mm-hmm. annihilation, universalism, and purgatory, which isn't really a view of hell. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something different, but yeah. anyway, it's in there. So the book's good because it gives you the, the four, di- well, four different views on how they would respond to each other. So you can at least weigh up what you think. Does that? That's that's probably the best entry point because it sure. gives a very succinct statement of each view and the arguments for it and how they would attempt to refute their opponents. And then each of them gets a chance to uh, argue with the other and so on. And sure. it doesn't conclude. It, it leaves it to the reader to, to weigh it up. 
And it also points towards other resources, all the chapters do, sure. for people who would like to to read more. Sure. And your book can be, so can that, be found that, there. Of course, from the universalist perspective, then there's the Evangelical Universalist by Gregory MacDonald, right, right. which I'm told is very good. I've been told that as well. I actually um, have it and on there's the Thomas Talbot's The Inescapable Love of God. Okay. Uh, so that's that's a great book. Um, those, well, there's a whole bunch of books. Uh, George Saris's book, the title of which now eludes me, you'll kill me. <laughs> I can see the cover, but I can't see the title. <laughs> anyway, there's a whole, whole bunch of books, but those, right. those would be, um, okay. where I'd start. Okay. Well, Robin, I, thank you so much. I know, um, there's been a big time difference and shift between the two of us being on, on different sides of the Atlantic. Um, so I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk to me, uh, very much. And, um, I look forward to it's maybe, okay. I maybe hope doing the it again. Was okay. No, it's fine. Um, I look forward to maybe doing it again <laughs> in the future on a different topic, some form in the future, if you're willing. If I know about any other topics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great, lovely. Sure. Well, thank you very much and um, um, be blessed. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to everyone uh, that listened today, to everyone that has supported us in any way, be it Twitter, Facebook, the iTunes reviews, uh, both the negative and the positive ones. Any feedback is so helpful. Uh, To those of you that have donated in any amount, I can't tell you how much that helps. Those funds help to make all of this happen. Uh, how else can you help? Please follow us on Facebook, on Twitter. Now, the most important thing that you can do is share this with your friends and family. Share it on Facebook. Share it everywhere. The more input, the more feedback, the more conversation we have, it's, it's going to be better for all of us. Uh, it's going to help us all grow and it's going to stretch us all. 